Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to understand the good news that you are alive and that you long to have a relationship with us. Use what you say to us in the Bible to help us know you better and follow you more. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I have a friend who's a high school pastor, and one night he was speaking to a group of high school students, and he thought he was doing just a great job. I mean, they were laughing, they were crying. He was really impressed with his preaching skills until he overheard one of the students lean over to a friend and say, yeah, 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 blah, 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 life's hard and Jesus makes it better, blah, blah, blah. He was crushed. I think that's how we as Christians sometimes sound to people who are not Christians. Sort of like the adults in a Charlie Brown cartoon. Remember how in a Charlie Brown cartoon, whenever the adults talk, all they would be able to say is, wah, wah, wah. Yeah? I think that's sometimes how we Christians sound to people who aren't Christians, especially pastors. You know, wah, wah, wah. We don't make any sense. We use weird words. And we're completely irrelevant. This is the last sermon in a series I've been doing on why people aren't Christian. And the reason I want to talk about tonight is because people think that Jesus is irrelevant. As I've told you before, seven out of ten Americans think that the church is completely irrelevant to their daily lives. And some of those seven out of ten people even go to church. Some of them may even be you. You may even be thinking right now, he's got a point. It seems irrelevant. And I think we as Christians, even even those of us who have been Christians a long time, often end up asking ourselves, is Jesus really relevant to my daily concerns? I'm struggling financially. What does Jesus have to do with that? I've heard he just wants a 10% commission. That's not going to help. Or I'm busy with family and career. How is Jesus going to help that? Or I've got physical problems, or I'm struggling to keep my friendships together, or just find friendships, or I'm struggling in my marriage. How relevant is some first century Palestinian prophet to my daily concerns? And the answer to that question is, sometimes he isn't. Or he doesn't seem relevant anyway. Look at the story that we just got through reading. Here Jesus is teaching in someone's house and suddenly these people start to dig a hole in the roof. Right? There'd be dust flying everywhere, chunks of roof falling on people. Right? It'd be quite a scene. And they lower this paralyzed man right in front of Jesus. I mean, imagine if that just happened here. You'd be weirded out, right? They, they, they lower this paralyzed man in front of Jesus and what's the first thing that he says? Your sins are forgiven. What? I mean, talk about irrelevant. What's that got to do with anything, right? I mean, the guy's paralyzed for crying out loud. I mean, why why didn't Jesus say you're healed or here's the number of a good doctor in Jerusalem? Or at least he could have said, I know of a good carpenter who can fix that roof. Jesus was a carpenter. See, never mind. Time change. But that's not what he said. He said, your sins are forgiven. It seems like the most irrelevant thing he could have said in that moment. And I don't know about you, but sometimes that's my experience with Jesus. I come to him with the things that are important to me, my agenda. And I say, Jesus, you know, make me successful. Make me happy. I want, I need. Give me this. Give me that. And Jesus says, Scott, your sins are forgiven. And I say, cool. Or something like that. But what about my 
things, my career, my success, my image. What? And Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. And it is that seemingly irrelevant statement that is actually the most important thing to me, the thing I need to hear the most. Because you see, the forgiveness that Jesus offers actually solves our real problem. And that is our broken relationship with God. And that's what's going on in this story of the paralyzed man. Because back in this guy's day, people thought that if you were paralyzed, it's because you did something horrible to deserve it. And this man probably thought the same thing. He probably thought, I'm paralyzed because God's really mad at me. God hates me. So in saying your sins are forgiven, Jesus is actually getting to this person's real problem, his separation from God. Jesus is saying God is not mad at you. In fact, God forgives you. In fact, it's even better than that. God loves you. Jesus is healing his broken relationship with God. And when that is healed, this man can walk again. And it's the same for us. Now, we know that illness and hardship and bad things are not caused by sin. Jesus himself makes that clear. It's not a punishment for sin. But the heart of most of our problems is that we feel separated from God. For instance, we carry around shame and guilt for not feeling like we're measuring up, that we're not good enough in some way. And that paralyzes us, makes it hard to relate to other people because we're always afraid they're going to discover our secrets. But if we really knew that God loved us and that he forgave our sins, our shame and guilt problem would go away. When we have financial worries, often it's because we don't feel close enough to God to trust him that he's going to provide for us. Even illness is not caused by sin, but separation from God makes it harder to bear. If we can feel God's presence in our illness, well, then we can bear it more easily. A lot of the problems we have stem from or are made worse by feeling far from God and not knowing how much he loves us. Think about the insecurities most of us walk around with. All of that stems from a distance from God. I remember when I first started doing college ministry, going to a conference for college pastors. And I was talking with a group of pastors at one of the breaks, and and one of them just asked, well, how's your ministry doing? Now, for those of you who don't speak pastorese, if you were to look that up in your English pastor, Pastor English Dictionary, you would discover that what that phrase really means is, how many people do you have coming? And what that means is, how important are you? Do you matter? Well, one of the guys says, I have 800 students coming. Well, good for you, right? And another guy said, well, I have a 1,000 students coming. And then they turned to me. And at the time, I only had about 20 students coming, and most of them were grumpy about it. So I said, don't ask me, I'm the caterer. Leave me home, leave me out of this. I felt insecure, I didn't actually say that. I felt insecure, I felt like I had to prove myself. But if I had understood how much God loved me in that moment, if I had been close enough to God in that moment to know how much he loved me, I wouldn't have felt the need to prove myself. I wouldn't have felt insecure. Who cares what they think about me? God loves me. We feel so much pressure to prove ourselves, to convince people that we're good or that we're important or that we're successful or, or that we're attractive, to cover over the flaws we know we have. And that paralyzes us. And that's what Jesus is getting at when he says to this man, your sins are forgiven. He's saying God loves you just the way you are. And having healed that, this man's paralysis goes away. 
You see, Jesus does care about the practical things in our lives. It's just that he cares about our relationship with God more. Because he knows that when we feel close to God, all of those other things, our finances, our friendships, our image, our career, our status, all of those other things, in the words of the old hymn, grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Before I was a Christian, I had a friend who had a lot of problems on a whole host of issues. She didn't think she was very smart. She couldn't keep a job. She drank too much. And all of that made her feel insecure and feel a lot of shame. But then she met some Christians who were different. Instead of judging her flaws, they'd talk about their own openly and about how Jesus had forgiven them and about how he died to pay the price for all of those things that she felt ashamed about. And she took the bait. She became a Christian. Now, at the time, I was still an atheist, so I was horrified. I couldn't imagine anything worse, right, than becoming a Christian. And I thought it was the most irrelevant thing in the world. I mean, she needed therapy. She needed discipline. She needed a job. She didn't need some first-century carpenter. And at first, nothing in her life changed. She stayed pretty much the same. And so I sort of felt like I was justified, you know, sort of made me feel good, made me say, see, I was right. Jesus doesn't do any good. Gloating has always been a strength of mine. I do it very well. But then over the course of the next year or so, I began to notice some differences. Feeling forgiven, she didn't feel the need to hide her sins anymore. In fact, she could talk about them as if they were behind her and didn't have any power over her. She started to make real close friendships, kept her job. She even looked happier. At first, Jesus seemed like the most irrelevant thing in the world to what she really needed. But when she knew how much he loved her, when she knew she was forgiven, that changed everything, including the practical concerns of her life. The grace of Jesus is the most relevant thing there is. And only Jesus can give it because only Jesus died to pay the price to purchase that grace. And only Jesus is God in the flesh. That's what he's claiming in this story. That's what makes the religious leaders mad. He's claiming to be God in the flesh who can bridge the gulf between us and God. Only Jesus can do that. And the grace he offers is what all of us need deep down more than anything else. But there's just one problem. Just one problem. People don't know him. People don't know that he offers the most important thing there is, the most relevant thing to them. They don't know that. Even church people sometimes forget that. I know I do. And that's why we need each other. In this story, it is not clear at all whether this paralyzed man has any faith in Jesus. What is clear is that his friends do. And when he couldn't get to Jesus himself, they carried him. They served him. And it couldn't have been easy, right? I mean, they had to carry a grown man through the streets of town and then haul him up to the top of the roof. That had to be hard, right? And when they got to the house, the entrance was blocked with all these people. I mean, that was difficult. But they didn't give up. They didn't quit. They didn't whine. They didn't appoint a committee to study various ways to get to Jesus. (laughs) Right? Let's study this some more. Yes, let's, right? They just ripped the roof open. Kind of cool, don't you think? Kind of out of the box, but cool. They served him, even though it was difficult, even though it was unorthodox, even though it was costly to them in terms of time and effort, not to mention liability for the roof. 
But in serving him in such a costly way, they help this paralyzed man to have faith in Jesus. And that's what we're called to do. We are called to carry others to Jesus so that they can experience his grace too. And this is why serving in our Jubilee year and beyond is so important. Because in a world that considers Christians about as relevant as a fish in a bicycle shop, the only thing that's going to get people's attention is not going to be our sermons, not going to be our arguments, not going to be how well we talk about it. The only thing that's going to get people's attention is if we turn outward and do acts of service that show our community the real Jesus. It's going to be as we serve our neighbors or our coworkers, as we tutor at Stevenson Elementary, or as we go over there to do an extreme makeover on the school on August 13th. Then suddenly Jesus is going to seem a lot more relevant to those people, but also to us. I mean, it wasn't just the paralyzed man that got to see Jesus' power in this story. It was his friends as well because they served him. You see, our service is really for us. It's not about us going and saving people and look at us. We can save you. No, it's not about that. It's about entering into relationships that help everyone see Jesus better. A while back, Christina and I had a house guest, very successful person, very well-educated guy who grew up hating Christians. But he had a few Christian friends along the way who just kind of kept loving him and looking for ways to serve him. And at one point, they offered to pay his way to Europe for an entire summer if he would spend six weeks in a, at a Bible college in Austria. Well, he had no interest in the Bible college, but a free trip to Europe, that sounded cool, so he took him up on it. And he traveled all through Europe, went to all the nightclubs, kind of enjoyed the party scene for a while, finally showed up at the Bible college, determined to destroy every argument he heard there. But the first night he was there, there was a speaker from Australia, and he didn't want to listen, but the speaker had a cool Australian accent, and he couldn't help it, right? He kept, oh, that sounds neat, because it's in a different language, sort of. And the speaker was talking about the book of Ephesians, where it talks about avoiding unhealthy habits like drinking or drinking too much and getting drunk and sexual promiscuity and gossiping, all the stuff he'd been doing for the last couple of months. Suddenly, the Bible seemed a little relevant to his life. So he opened it up. He'd never opened his Bible in his life. The Bible was completely uncreased. He had no idea where Ephesians was. He didn't know if it was in the New Testament or the Old Testament or in the appendix. Had no idea. Finally found it and started reading it. And realized that it was describing the life that he had been living and the emptiness that comes from it. But it also talked about this guy named Jesus who loves us. And he was interested. And for the next six weeks, he got to see the real Jesus stripped of American culture. And when the people there found out about his life, how he hated Christians, how he'd spend his time drinking, gossiping, all that stuff, all they said was the church is not for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. He'd never heard that before. He always thought that church was for perfect people who had it all together and let everyone else know how perfect they were. Well, at the end of the six weeks, he went on a two-day hike and spent a lot of that time praying. And in that time, sort of felt like God was nudging him to stay another six weeks at the Bible college. But he didn't have any money to pay for it. So he said to God, God, if you want me to stay, then you provide the money and I will. Silly man. 
When he got back from his hike, the head of the school said that he just received an anonymous check that would pay for him to go to that college for another six weeks. And he knew that that had to be God answering his prayer, and it freaked him out. So he caught the next plane back to home. <laughs> said, this is spooky. I'm out of here, right? But it got him thinking. It would you too, probably. About this Jesus who knew everything he ever did and loved him anyway. This Jesus who didn't condemn him, but simply said, your sins, and I know they are many, are forgiven. And he could not hold out against such love for very long. And finally gave his life over to Christ. And that changed everything. Changed his career. In fact, right now he's studying to be a pastor, which is how I met him. Nothing was more relevant to him than this incredible grace that God offers every one of us. And he discovered it because some friends went out of their way to serve him, carried him to Jesus so that he could know his grace. You see, the forgiveness of God is not irrelevant. It is powerful stuff. It can transform a life. It can turn a life upside down. Grace is the DNA of the universe. It is the MS-DOS that boots the whole thing up and keeps it running. And it's, it's the most liberating force there is. It breaks all the chains of fear and insecurity and shame that bind us. And it sets us free to be who God created us to be. A few years ago, there was a concert at Wembley Stadium. Guns N' Roses was the band. But to end the concert, the tour director thought it'd be a good idea to have Jesse Norman sing at the end. Now, for those of you who don't know who Guns N' Roses is... It is a heavy metal, acid rock, very loud rock and roll band. Very loud. Many of you wouldn't like it. Very loud. And Jesse Norman is one of the world's premier opera singers. She's considered one of the world's greatest sopranos. A heavy metal band and an opera singer. Okay, you thought we had disagreements about music here, right? No, I mean, this is worship wars at its intense, right? I mean... Whoever put this concert together must have been on drugs. I mean, it makes no sense, right? I mean, can you think of anything more irrelevant to a Guns N' Roses concert than an opera singer? Well, Guns N' Roses played the whole concert, played all their songs, and they left the stage. By then, the crowd was drunk and high and wanted more Guns N' Roses, but they were done. So Jesse Norman came out to sing, this irrelevant opera singer, and the crowd just kind of went crazy. They, they wanted Guns N' Roses, and started getting belligerent and ugly and started chanting guns and roses, guns and roses, right? And we're starting to get even a little bit violent. But in the middle of this, Jesse Norman just steps up to the microphone and starts to sing a cappella, no backup at all, started to sing Amazing Grace. Now, the crowd kept chanting through the first verse, guns and roses, guns and roses, right? But she just kept singing. And gradually, they got more quiet. And by the end of the song, most of the crowd had picked up the hymn and were singing along with her. When she was asked about it later, Jesse Norman said, I don't know what happened. I guess people are just thirsty for grace wherever they can get it. And when they get it, it changes their life. Ain't that the truth? People are just thirsty for grace wherever they can get it. And when they get it, it changes them. We have the most relevant, 
powerful thing there is, this amazing grace of God that is poured out on sinners and wretches like an angry drunken mob at a concert or the person pretending to have it all together to cover over all their flaws or the middle manager just trying to keep up with the pace of life. God's grace poured out to everyone, to to the down and out and to the up and in and to sinners and wretches like you and sinners and wretches like me. The Bible puts it this way. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are if we know Jesus. That we, who are flawed and fallible, finite and fickle, that we should be called the sons and daughters of the living God. What could be more relevant than that? If you've never had a chance to make Jesus a part of your life, I'd invite you to just do that as we come to communion Just spend some time talking to Jesus and just say, I need you in my life, Jesus. Would you please be my leader and my forgiver? Or if you do know him, but maybe you're feeling far from him, use this time in communion just to reconnect with him. Or maybe spend some time thinking about someone you know who doesn't know Jesus and how you could serve them, how you could carry them to Jesus so that all of us could know the amazing grace he offers and wants to give to each and every one of us. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this free gift. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it, but we're grateful for it. Lord, we pray that you would help us to receive your grace and then, Lord, help to pass it along to other people. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.